0: Today on The Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Our voters embracing change in recent elections. In Quebec, the Liberals were voted out. New Brunswick, Liberals are trying to form a minority government, even though they have fewer seats than the PCs. We, of course, know what happened in uh, uh, Ontario. Uh, Saskatchewan as well, and when you think of what's going to happen or possibly could happen in Alberta, and although it's going to be interesting to see how the BC government fares as well with this uh, LNG project going through, and apparently the Green Party not supporting. So are we seeing a change in the tide of Canadian politics? Let's bring in Peter Griff, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. He's with us now. Peter, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure. What are your thoughts about the, the the election in New Brunswick, the election in Quebec? Is the tide changing?
1: Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, we have 10 provinces. Uh, governments last maybe uh, seven, eight years. So, I mean, I think we regularly expect to see some turnover in provincial elections. Uh, I mean, the one in New Brunswick doesn't strike me as... a uh, as a huge surprise, uh, there's been a lot of moving back and forth between the Liberals and the Conservatives uh, in elections. Uh, it doesn't seem like anyone has really been able to develop some sense of dominance in that electoral system. What's maybe more interesting is that you've got four parties getting elected, despite our electoral system, which tends to encourage just having two. Um, so that one's not as a huge surprise. The one in Quebec is a bit more of a noteworthy election the extent that we see the collapse of the Parti Québécois, so an important change after, you know, about 40, nearly 50 years of existence, um, you know, to see that party uh, maybe not wiped off the electoral landscape, but at a low uh, below, which we wouldn't have expected. The Liberal Party, likewise, in the low 20s, a uh, party that we usually expect to see around 40%, again, a significant decline there, and and the rise of a new party, the CAQ. So, that's a, 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 an election of much more change, I think, than the New Brunswick
0: one. Uh, in regard to Quebec, I've been since 1976 that the government has either been liberal or PQ. Uh, why the decline in PQ? Because there's still there's still strong feelings there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, there's still a sense of nationhood that's important, but the idea that, that that has to take the form of some kind of form of sovereign statehood has become, I think, much less uh, important and significant, particularly with the newer cohorts of voters. Uh, And so uh, to the extent that the PQ did not transition from the arguments about uh, sovereignty to develop a a different kind of nationalism, and perhaps based much more around protection of the language uh, or some other forms of uh, cultural uh, support, I think really lost it the support of, of young people coupled with a series of choices of political leaders who were you know in many cases speaking more to the older demographic and not capturing uh... changes among younger voters i mean it was it was back in the early two thousands there was an important report put out by some of the younger uh... representatives of the pq in the national assembly saying well we really have to take a different tack we have to really begin talking about ecology We have to talk about the national question in a different way uh... but those uh, views weren't heated, and the, the leadership candidates who tried to take them up uh, were unsuccessful in, in the three leadership contests since then.
0: Normally, when Quebec isn't happy, uh, the PQ starts stoking those fires. What's different this time? More option?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean I, think, uh, I mean, I think you had a, an electorate that was really tired of the, the Liberals in place, uh, I mean, it's a Liberal Party that was found to be deeply corrupt in the Charbonneau Commission about 10 years ago. Uh, people wanted to throw it out, uh, and they did throw it out in the 2012 election, um, but with a PQ minority. And it was clear that that government had a tough time uh, really you know, raising people's interest in, in what they had to offer. And so we saw the Liberals come back, even despite all this kind of news of corruption two years later in 2014, uh... so i think people were profoundly tired with the liberal party and were looking for an alternative they thought the pq was just more of the same and so someone like francois legault who could come forward with uh, a platform that you know is nevertheless quite uh, nationalist in a conservative sense uh... keen to uh... try and limit uh... the wearing of uh, of religious symbols for instance uh... you know which is uh... tied to this idea of sustaining a certain uh... conception of, of quebec as a uh, you know, as a society without the sort of public display of religion, and so forth, uh, you know, became an important rallying point. I mean, similarly, although the the CAQ didn't have a whole lot to say about culture, they did about language and the importance of pushing uh, the language question much more, particularly around immigration. Uh, I think, again, which was able to attract a more conservative-minded nationalist voter, one who in the past might have been happy to vote for the PQ.
0: Uh, when Prime Minister Trudeau was first elected, uh, it was quite a wave. We saw that ripple through uh, the province, especially with the relationship that Kathleen Wynne and the Prime Minister had during that, that first election and such. Is it swinging back the other way? Do you, do you get that feeling that, uh, that, you know, with Quebec and, and Ontario both uh, now electing right-leaning uh, uh, governments, what is the, how does the Prime Minister react to this?
2: I mean,
1: certainly it's hard to see him having a better day next year than he did in 2015. I mean, our electoral system, of course, uh, makes a big difference in this kind of outcome. I mean, uh, we talk about these things swinging one way or the other. In many cases, it's maybe 4 or 5% uh, of voters choosing, you know, the the blue team or the red team. <laughs> That's enough to make it seem like we, we have a pretty significant change. So, I mean, the Conservatives in uh in the last uh, federal election going from about thirty eight percent down to the low thirties, you know suddenly makes us see that you know the the world has changed, but I mean they retain a a base where if they add again another six or seven percent they might be back in majority territory so uh yeah I mean I think there's a way in which a government that's been in place uh now for three years uh is unable to incarnate change and hope in the same way because it it's had to make the difficult decisions of governing. And uh, people who had bought certain promises now see that they've been left unfulfilled. So, yeah, I think it will be a challenge for Trudeau, although for a government that's been there for three years, he's still uh, leading in the polls. He still has relatively high approval ratings, but certainly he must look at these results and see certain vulnerabilities. Uh, people may be getting a bit tired of him. Uh, but also the, the the capacity of running the election campaigns through new forms of media uh, kind of radical simplifications of the of facts and presentations may make it harder for someone like uh, Trudeau to to manage some of the challenges next year.
0: You talked about other parties entering the fray. Usually they end up just being spoilers, not necessarily winning elections. This one, uh, CAQ, I guess, uh, seven years old now. Um, are we going to see more of this? Are we going to see more splintering?
1: Well, I mean, our electoral system works powerfully to punish small parties, but, I mean, as we saw in New Brunswick, uh, we had the Greens getting elected, and the Greens seem to be getting people elected in a variety of elections. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in the in, in New Brunswick as well, we had a kind of populist uh, anti-French party <laughs> that came forward, the People's Alliance, uh, you know, which uh, builds on the old Confederation of Regents Party in that uh, province. Um, Yeah, and in Quebec, too, we had four parties competing. I mean, I think uh, when we begin to see uh, the splintering of electorates and the capacity of these parties to break down, you know, a province regionally, so even if they aren't getting a huge percentage province-wide, they're able to concentrate it in a number of seats and get representation. Uh, You know, we begin to have the possibility of electing majority governments with about a third of the votes cast, uh, and so I think maybe it does push us to say maybe we've got to rethink our electoral system. You know, if one of the arguments people make for, for the existing one is that it's, you know, it produces a clear result and you have a winning party, uh, it becomes you know harder to do that when you have three, four, sometimes even five parties who are able to elect members.
0: Everybody talks about that, Peter, but do we really think it's ever going anywhere? I mean, the prime minister said that that would be the last election won and the first past the post system. I mean, we know where that went
1: no i guess uh yeah i'm I'm skeptical myself, although uh it just doesn't go away either yeah <laughs> so we have uh we have a referendum about to start, and well I mean it's undergoing the the voting will start soon in b c about whether they want to change their system uh i mean the the c a q in Quebec uh, had as part of its platform indeed, all the parties except the the Liberal Party in Quebec were pushing the idea of moving to some kind of form of electoral reform. So, yeah, again, uh, we have many reasons to be skeptical that once parties get elected under the existing system that they want to change it. But on the other hand, uh, it seems a much more constant part of our electoral debate than it was, say, 20 years ago, uh, to the extent that we might see a province uh, put in into place and we'd get a chance to see whether we liked the kind of politics that came out of it.
0: Are we becoming a country of extremes or are we just more represented?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, we see two things happening with uh, in our politics. I mean, the new parties aren't always pushing to the extreme. In the case of Quebec, we might say that the CAQ did come into place in part for the desire to have a slightly more right-wing party than the Liberals uh, or a, a party that was a bit more right and sovereignist than the Quebec Liberal Party. But for the most part, uh, you know, the new parties are less about uh producing some kind of radicalization, then representing some voice that wasn't present. And so the Green Mm. Party, uh, I think, would be there. uh, kind of the key, uh, the break that we see in a lot of provinces in terms of them having a greater position. I mean, I do think we have seen a radicalization of particularly conservative parties. If you look at changes in in platforms over the years from the 1980s on, the, the conservative party went from a pretty centrist party to one that uh, is more ideological and so we've seen a bit of polarization in the system uh... and i guess a question will be whether the conservative parties given you know some more recent uh, uh... presence of the far right in our politics decide to open up to that or whether they'll maintain their old position from the you know 60s, 70s, and eighties that they have you no know, no space for uh... people pushing more sort of racist uh, views of what the right uh, entails
0: that being said, liberals moving more to the left—we certainly saw that with win in Ontario.
1: Yeah, at least rhetorically. Uh, maybe on a few policy issues, uh, there was a bit of uh, a left uh, tinge. I mean, I think the Liberals, for a while after the the right became more ideological in the '80s, still tried to be centrist. But I think now they see really that their future involves, uh, you know, fighting off the NDP on the left, and so we do see a tendency at least in Ontario and federally where we have uh uh three-party systems to see the liberal party take more of a left uh uh image you know with the idea that they have to find a way of of undercutting the NDP if they're going to assemble a coalition that can govern
0: so who is catering to the center
1: oh well, that's a good question i mean the the center is a bit of a, a nebulous concept at the moment i mean on a number of issues that in the past might have you know, divided left and right, particularly around economic development and the place of free markets, we see a lot of consensus between uh, the liberals and the conservatives with slight tweaks around them. In some ways, we might see that as a centrism. Uh, you know, where they where they uh, take apart much more is on a number of, if you like, more sort of social or moral issues where they, they push the polarization more. And so I guess part of the question is, is there a really big center on those things or, in fact, a fairly significant social division with people seeing it one way or the other?
0: Uh, It it appears that, for example, take uh, Doug Ford compared to um, Patrick Brown, perhaps not a good example. Patrick seemed to be taking the party more to the center, Doug Ford more to the right, uh, more towards the, the old Bill Davis style of conservatives. Uh, and again, as you were speaking more of the past, are we going to see that again? Who, who is the, are the Liberals going to come further right or are the Conservatives going to go further left?
1: Well, I mean, I think uh, provincially the Liberals do have a big open space at the moment where uh, you know, people who don't see themselves as New Democrats uh, might nevertheless find uh, certain decisions of the Ford government going forward to be unnecessarily divisive. Uh, or unnecessarily keeping with uh, sort of the traditions of Ontario politics, and, and more to the point, uh, people don't want politics in their lives every day. But uh, the Ford government seems keen on making it so. So they might see the Liberals as a kind of a party where you can hit the pause button and uh, see other things. So I think there'll be a big incentive for the Liberals to try and develop some kind of uh, uh, space in the middle as a way of. of you know, being able to take on the NDP, who's clearly trying to eat their lunch on the one hand, uh, and, a, and a strong uh, Conservative government on the other. I mean, for the Conservative Party, I, I think they're in a way at a crossroads. Patrick Brown was of the view that if they wanted to get to a level where they could elect a government, they had to uh, deal with Ontarians as people who didn't want hot politics, who wanted things to be a bit bland, uh, but wanted something other than the Liberals. Uh, Doug Ford's uh, gamble was that the Liberals were weak enough that. Uh, if you really targeted uh, core conservative support with really strong messages, uh, you could have a much more ideological platform and win, and, and that succeeded for him. Uh, in the longer run, I guess the question will be: uh, Can he get reelected, or will he begin turning people off? Again, people who don't want politics to be part of their their day to day, or who are kind of wary of things like using notwithstanding clauses, or uh, regularly inviting lawsuits, or tearing up contracts without compensation. Uh, I mean, there's a number of issues that uh, I think would speak to what might be, what we might consider a right-wing liberal electorate that Doug Ford was able to win uh, this past year.
0: Peter Grafe has been with us, professor of political science at McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doug Ford and Christine Elliott made an announcement at 12.30 this afternoon in regards to health care in Ontario. Uh, This is the report from uh, Travis Danra of Global News.
3: Sources are telling us that uh, this is going to be a funding injection of $90 million. The health minister and premier are going to be here to meet with health care stakeholders this afternoon. They're having a a photo opportunity and announcement. Reporters will not be able to ask questions. Let's try to break down uh, what this funding will go. To. The, the government says that it's going to help end hallway health care around 1,100 hospital beds including 655 new beds and 450 existing spaces that's what some of this 90 million dollars will go towards and the government also uh, is saying that 15,000 new long-term care beds over the next five years will be created. The NDP though are calling this uh, a, a lack of funding they say that this is a repurposed liberal band-aid solution last year. Here, of course, we did see the Liberals inject $100 million for uh, sim- similar health care initiatives. Uh, and the NDP really said that they want to see about $300 million go towards helping uh healthcare in this province this of course comes this announcement does before the flu season when you generally see an uptick of people going to hospitals the Ontario Hospital Association they are applauding this saying that any investment in healthcare is good news the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario they will also be here as well and their president will be uh giving her reaction a little bit later this afternoon
0: all right uh Wow. Uh, The Ontario Health Coalition has spent 12 years campaigning to stop the hospital cuts and to get action on the bed crisis. Ontario has the fewest hospital beds per capita in Canada and is third from the bottom of the entire OECD. Ontario funds its public hospitals at the lowest rate in Canada. To talk more about all of this, Natalie Mara is with us, Executive Director, Ontario Health Coalition, and is with us now. Natalie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
2: Hi, happy to be here. Thanks. I'm just uh, in the ministry building outside the announcement, actually, right now.
0: So, what was your feeling when you heard all of this?
2: Well, it's actually a cut masquerading as a funding announcement, and so it's this, you know it's annoying because it's manipulative, and it's a problem because we are. If you look at the actual numbers, we're fourteen thousand beds behind the average province in Canada, so the average of the rest of Canada, even with the Liberal beds that they announced last fall, which were really a pre-election announcement of 1,200 beds that they were going to open to deal with the hospital um, hallway medicine crisis, so people lying on stretchers and hallways in their hospitals waiting sometimes for days for beds. We were still at the bottom of the country in terms of the number of hospital beds that we still have open, right? They've been cut now almost for 40 years straight. And so, uh, so we were concerned about that to start off with. And now we have this announcement of 1,100 beds, so 100 beds less than the Liberals had opened, uh, and half of the money. So this is not an increase. This is actually a decrease.
0: So uh, say that... That's a problem. Give us those numbers one more time and explain that.
2: Sure. So last October... Uh, as we were leading into the election, we had been pressuring very, very hard to deal with this crisis, and so had the opposition in the legislature, and putting out the numbers, you know, of the hospital bed crisis, right? In in most large towns in the province, hospitals are running at more than 100% capacity, meaning every bed is full. People are lying on stretchers and hallways. Surgeries have to get canceled. You know, ambulances can't offload. A full-on crisis, not because of the flu, but because they've cut too many hospital beds. And the minister finally moved on it, and he announced the opening of 1,200 hospital beds across Ontario. So it it, it amounts to like a handful in each hospital, not even enough to address the existing crisis, but it was a move, a small move in the right direction. Then in February the minister, so this is a Liberal Minister still before the election announced uh the money that was gonna come this year in the budget, one hundred and eighty seven million. So in the in this current fiscal year. So right. starting in April. Um, and then of course the Ford government got elect, elected, that whole budget is put on hold and nothing happens over the summer. The Ford government basically rolls back most of the sort of, you know, funding announcements and so on from the from the budget uh and now we hear the funding for hospitals and it's not 187 million which is what the liberals had put in the budget but 90 million so about half and not 1200 beds but 1100 beds so less beds um than the liberals had uh, had opened uh and so it's it's a funding cut masquerading as a funding announcement.
0: So, had these beds been opened, or were they on in the process of being opened, and now they just won't be?
2: They were opened. So uh, theoretically, the they
0: so theoretically they're closing them.
2: Yeah, they're closing a hundred beds. It looks like, yep. wow. Uh,
0: yeah. Wow. Why do uh, y- you know? You talked about where we stand, or we talked in the stats about where we stand as a province. Um, lowest, uh, the fewest hospital beds per capita in Canada, third from the bottom uh, in the entire OECD. Ontario finds its public hospitals at the low, funds its hospitals at the lowest rates in Canada. H- how do we have this problem and other provinces don't? How are the other provinces managing this?
2: I think there's a real problem in the Ministry of Health. I think that there's an ideology, and it is ideology. There's no evidence to support it because no one else has been as radical in the cuts. No one in the world really has been as radical in their cuts to public hospitals as we have. And the ideology is that, you know, you just keep moving people out of hospital. The fact is that there's nowhere for them to go. There are, 30, you know, 30,000 people waiting for nursing home beds in Ontario. And nursing homes aren't hospitals. They're funded at a much lower rate. They have much less nursing care and personal support care than a hospital bed does. But they're cheaper. And that's why they keep moving people. They keep trying to move people out. And the truth is, now there's nowhere for them to go home care is inadequate and you know could never you could never drive care to every individual home commensurate to hospital care you know that is just nonsense and it always has been but it's a cover for cuts essentially and and you know ontario funds all of its public services at the lowest rate in uh, in the country uh and and hospitals are in line with that but we really we have dropped to the bottom of the country and the The problem is that there really is like a real crisis on hand. So it's disturbing to see that this is the direction of the government. So I think what we're going to say is, you know, Doug Ford promised to end hallway medicine. And that means restoring capacity. Without question, it means that they have to reopen hospital beds, restore services and so on. These are early days in government, but we'll keep up the pressure and demand that they actually stop the cuts and actually live up to their promise to restore the services and deal with this issue for once and for all. Because really, people are suffering as a result of it.
0: Uh, Many said this was just old money, uh, but you say it's even less
1: than that.
2: That's right. It's. I mean, it's a re-announcement of money that's already been announced. But the Liberals announced 187 million. That was what they put in the budget, and what um, Christine Elliott, the new health minister, and Doug Ford, the premier, announced today, was 90 million. So that is half. It's half of it.
0: What will that do to solving this issue? How will how will that help?
2: Well, it won't. I mean, it just won't solve the issue. The issue can't really be solved without. Um, building the long-term care beds. So that's good. They're talking about building more long-term care beds. That's going to take a number of years. L- let's talk said, about that, Natalie. Yeah. How,
0: how do we get out of this?
2: Yeah. So we need, we definitely need long-term care beds. That's in plain language. That's nursing home beds, right? Mm-hmm. So we have 30,000 people on the wait list. Doug Ford has promised 30,000 beds over 10 years. So, um, so that will, you know, only address the existing wait lists in an aging population. so, just you know in context that will not get us out of the crisis no. but boy it's better than nothing and uh, and so we're moving a little bit on the long-term care beds front but on the hosp. but we also need hospital beds and a lot a lot of times politicians will say this glib thing like oh home care costs us you know a few hundred dollars a day and long-term care double that and a hospital bed quadruple that well they're playing with the numbers right? An ICU bed, an intensive care unit bed in a hospital, has one nurse to one patient. So they're, obviously they cost more. Mm. You know, an acute care bed costs a certain amount, a chronic care bed costs less, a transitional bed less again, and so on. It depends on the level of care needed in those beds. As we continue to cut hospital beds, all we're doing is shifting patients with the same level of acuity, the same level of need, to beds that have less staff and less services available for them it's a cut in care and so people in nursing homes already today find that if you can even get into the nursing home that you often have to hire in extra help if you can afford it and it's expensive like for a personal support worker it can be 26 to 28 dollars an hour for a nurse double that and a lot of families just can't afford it and so all of the problems that brought about the creation of public health care in the first place, the inequities, the suffering, all of those come back as they cut public health care services and offload them and download them in the way that they're doing. And so this really does have to be addressed in a serious way. Either we pay for it publicly or we pay privately when we're sick, when we're aging, and when we're least able to pay. And that does not fit with our values or our priorities as a society, and that's the message that we have to get through to the government.
0: Uh, 14,000 below the average, uh, 30,000 needed for uh, uh, nursing home uh, beds. We are so far behind. How do you make that up?
2: Well, I mean, it's a, it is difficult, right? We're not going to make it up immediately, no matter what we do. But and and think- as
0: you mentioned, by the time we do, the problem's just bigger.
2: That's right. But I think not doing anything or, you know, in this case, moving in the opposite direction, obviously, does nothing but compound the problem. And it is the privatization of public health care. And nobody voted for that. Um, So at this point, I mean, we just need to force the government to actually live up to its promise. Uh, The one thing that we have is that during the election campaign ontarians made their priorities clear and every party promised concrete action on the crisis in the hospitals and on the crisis in long-term care and so we just we have to now force them to live up to that that's that's the only way we're going to i mean obviously the 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 opposite is just too bad to contemplate already Families really are suffering a lot and people are waiting too long for surgeries and really their health gets compromised sometimes irreparably as a result. Uh, you know, people are waiting in undignified conditions and unsafe conditions in hospital hallways. The violence levels in long-term care and hospitals has, have gotten to a level that's really unheard of. And part of that is the overcrowding and the long waits and the, the inadequate Levels of care that are being provided because the cuts have just gone too far, and so we have to keep making it visible, and we have to keep pushing. You know, one one of the reasons we've been so vigilant and so um, assertive about this announcement is because we want the government to get the message that we are watching and we're not going to let them get away with it this time. We're going, you know, no bait and switch. We need real action on. A bed crisis now.
0: Governments obviously short of money always say they can't afford this. We've pointed out that we've already fallen so far behind. Uh, you have to wonder where the money is coming from to, 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 to even bring it back to where, where it should be. Is privatization an option? Is it about efficiencies or is it about we just need more money?
2: Well, they are privatizing, and that and thanks for asking that. I appreciate it because people may think that, but of course they are privatizing. By not providing it publicly, people have no option but to pay privately if they can afford it. The problem is people can't afford it. I mean, even the upper middle class can't afford a private um, long-term care home bed. They're just too expensive, and they can't afford to bring in private nursing care and private uh, personal support care. They just can't afford it. That's why... Every industrialized nation on earth, save the U.S. really, has a public health care system. And, you know, the the solution to underfunding of the public health system is not to cut it more and privatize more. The solution is to actually have an honest conversation with the electorate about what's going on. Ontario funds our health care at the lowest rate in Canada. Every other province is able to do better, right? So there's no question that this is a political choice and not a necessity and actually the plan is for more cuts to come massive cuts and you know those that is the exact opposite of what ontarians need and what they actually think i think that they voted for and so we have to we do have to address that there is some money available too that could go to care that isn't going to care and that money needs to go to care rather than say consultants and executive salaries and so on and so forth but in addition we need an injection of funding, and that means fair taxes. That means, you know, proper a proper approach to the province's revenues. It means an end to the cuts immediately and a start to, you know, res- actually restoring services and ensuring that money goes actually to care for people.
0: How can other provinces not be having the same issue?
2: Well, they just haven't cut. They haven't. I mean, we've had the largest corporate tax cuts in the country by far. And, you know, we, and the corporations are sitting on billions of dollars of dead money. So that money isn't actually going to job creation and so on. And we've also had major tax cuts, mostly that benefit the wealthiest um, income categories. And, and those are continuing. And the plan under Doug Ford is for more of those. So, yeah.
0: That being said, you know, we've just spent 15 years with the Liberal government and it wasn't done that way at all. So here we have two different governments and the same result.
2: Sort of, yeah. I mean, the Liberal government also brought in six, about four, between four and six billion dollars a year in corporate tax cuts. So they also, you know, adopted the same approach in some ways. And they cut hospitals. I mean, they, for what, 12 years? I know you and I have talked a lot about this over the years, but I mean, for 12 years, they held funding, 10 years, sorry, straight, they held funding for hospitals at below the rate of inflation. So in real dollar terms, a cut. Or absolute zero. So, you know, negative, negative funding levels for hospitals for 10 years straight. Why do and you think they
0: did that? I mean, there must be a reason behind it, Natalie. What, what's the yeah, reason? They're
2: trying to save money. What's,
0: yeah. What's the reasoning behind how you're supposed to do your job? How do you move forward?
2: Yeah, so they, I mean, they did it to save money um, and to pay in part for the corporate tax cuts and so on. And it's the same reason every government has done it. I mean, they're trying to they're cutting services in order to pay for the tax cuts essentially
0: so does that mean the only one left for you and uh, Natalie is the NDP
2: i no, know i know. know i know we don't want to
0: get political <laughs> here but i mean <laughs> no, it just it just yeah. seems we can't we can't we, we we can't seem to move forward on this despite the government
2: well i mean we saw a step forward in the fall with the announcement of the 1200 new beds yeah but that's an um, election fact,
0: promise let's be serious i mean you yeah know. i
2: mean they open i mean they were opened over the winter and that was that was the beginning yeah. of moving forward now you know even this current government which is going to bring in a lot of cuts is is maintaining what 1100 of the 1200 beds so you know people are afraid for the sake of, you know, of 100
0: and you <laughs> and you being able to come on the show and say that you'd think they just leave it the same I know, really. Like, why would you even <laughs> want to, for the sake of a hundred beds? <laughs> why would you do? Why would you shoot yourself in the foot with that PR gaff? I mean, come uh, on yeah, here.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Bizarre. I know. Natalie Mayor has been with us, Executive Director, Ontario Health Coalition. Natalie, as always, thank you for the time. Uh, uh, much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Good luck.
2: Okay. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. An Ancaster home has been featured in a hoax involving Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. This is bizarre. A claim emerged on social media that uh, an irate left-wing protester or protesters had vandalized his home. And then they used a picture, which ended up to be a spectator, Hamilton spectator photo, Uh, from a story involving vandalism two years earlier in Ancaster, but has absolutely no relation to uh, the event or the Supreme Court nomination whatsoever. So as we talk about fake news, do we have the ability to recognize it? Here's a great example of U.S. fake news using a local Hamilton image. To talk more about this, Simon Kiss is with us, Professor Journalism Leadership, Wolford Laurier University, and with us now. Thanks so much for the time, Simon. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You know, we hear about this sort of thing all the time. We hear about fake news. Perhaps we not, uh, we, we maybe not recognize it as often as we should. Are you surprised by this story? Is this a typical example? Uh,
4: it's bizarre. Uh, for the, it's, it's bizarre for one thing. Uh, Am I surprised? I'm a little surprised at how bizarre it is. I guess there's people out there in the world that have time in their hands to dig up random photos and attach them to news stories that they're interested in. Um, So yeah, I'm a little surprised, I guess. But the way the world is getting crazier, I seem to be more and more surprised every week.
0: Uh, we certainly know why people. Well, maybe we don't know why someone like this does something like this. Uh, we assume it's for political game, you know, for somehow uh, endorsing your team over the others. But a- as you said, um, y- you're making you're making stuff up. You're you're taking an image that doesn't even belong to a story and adding it to uh, something that's that, that's completely unrelated. What's the purpose of this? Is it? Is it to help the cause no matter what, or is it, nah, I got nothing better to do?
4: I think probably, I I would guess people have a political motivation that they're trying to further their cause, um, and they think that whatever serves the narrow political interests of their cause is,
0: is uh, fair game. Why is this okay now, or is it? Well, I think,
4: in some ways, it's always been okay. So we have a feeling that the partisan conflicts we see now are deeper and more intense than they have been. And there is some evidence to suggest that in the United States in particular, some forms of partisan conflict are getting more intense and deeper. But on the other hand... If you think a little bit about the, the long history of democratic partisan conflict, uh, you, you quickly settle on even more intense, violent forms of, of conflict, right? So if you go back to the 1950s, one example that I, I read about recently was a lot of Republicans actually approved of the Kent State shootings, um, where several peaceful college anti-war protesters were, uh, were, were gunned down. And, and a lot of people thought that was okay. Um, you know, and then you go back to the 19th century, uh, partisan conflict between Democrats and Republicans ultimately spilled out into the civil war. Hmm. So, um, partisan conflict is kind of built into the system and it has been even more intense than it has today.
0: There's always been a difference of opinion. There's always those that will go to their grave fighting for a cause. But where's the dignity? Where's the ethics? Where's the honor? I mean, because at the end I, of the day, this is uh, lying with modern technology.
4: For sure, it's lying with modern technology. Um, but, uh, to, you know, f- for a partisan who has a very clear vision of what, uh, justice is or what the right thing to do is, it doesn't take too many logical leaps to get from there to the belief that anything in the service of that end is is just right, so it becomes an uh, ends justifies the means. So, if you kind of deeply believe that a lot of the, say, the, the conservative right wing talking points um, about how we're locked in a culture war and getting away from religion is the under is undermining the foundations of our society, if you deeply believe that. Then, what's the big deal in, um, kind of cribbing together a, a, a fake news story that, at some level, you know, is clearly wrong and a lie, but, um, communicates kind of a, a truth as well, which is that the left, sorry, on this story, right, the, the gist of the, uh, of the fake news was that some extreme left-wing protesters had vandalized Judge Kavanaugh's home, Mm -hmm. which is not true. But, you know, people are mobilizing and um, taking him to task and um, criticizing his adherence. So in the mind of some, you might say, it's a distinction without a difference.
0: Are we, we're certainly more aware of fake news and stories like this, although some still may be confused. How do we identify what's fake or real? Do we really care or do we just want to hear something that supports our narrative?
4: Mostly we just want to hear something that supports our narrative. Um, there's a segment of the population that, uh, sort of is neutral generally in the partisan conflict and might be more interested in um, adhering mm-hmm. to, to facts. But if you scratch beneath the surface of those people's beliefs a little bit and you force them to pick and choose a side, they often will actually admit that they do have a left or a right orientation. They just won't admit it. So mostly we definitely do want to hear information that, that fits with what we already believe. Mm. And that's why this stuff is so common and so prevalent uh, and, and, frankly, works.
0: Good point. Simon Kiss has been with us, Professor, Journalism Leadership, Wilford Laurier University. Simon, thank you for the time. Much appreciated.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900-CHML.